Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in San Francisco. Five people are dead, including three children, following a shooting in a Sacramento church last night. Speaking at a news conference, Sacramento County Sheriff Scott Jones says this all happened inside an Arden area church called the Church in Sacramento around 5 p.m. The shooter uh, who is deceased has a restraining order against him and is has to have uh, supervised visits with his children. Uh, we believe that at this church that what is what was happening, a supervised visit. Uh, and the shooter came in and what appears to be killed the person who was supervising the visit, uh, killed his own three children, uh, and then turned the gun on himself uh, and killed himself. The sheriff's department says the three girls who were killed were 9, 10, and 13. Sheriff Jones says they're looking into the gunman's past, including the fact that the girl's mother had a temporary restraining order against him. If he was uh, the person in a domestic violence restraining order, he shouldn't have had a weapon. Um, And there are some other prohibitions that might be in place here of why he should not have a weapon. So we're very interested to find out that. A law enforcement source tells the Sacramento Bee the gunman had no history of past criminal offenses in the city. Crime has become a key concern for many California voters ahead of this year's election season. Earlier in the pandemic, the country saw an unprecedented spike in murders. But the story has become a little more complicated, and the political debate doesn't always reflect the data. To explain it all, KQAD's political correspondent Marisa Lagos joins us on The California Report. Marisa, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I feel like we should include the context that while crime rates in California did rise during the pandemic, they're nowhere near as bad as they were in like the early 1990s. With that being said, what sort of increases did we see in 2020 and how does that compare to where we are now? Yeah, I mean, it's really upsetting, Oddity. We did see huge spikes in murders, and this was true across the United States in red and blue states, in rural and in big cities, a 30 percent jump in murders, for example, in 2020 alone. And this, to your point, really came after decades of either declining or really flat violent crime rates. Now, it's a little more complicated when you get into property crimes. A lot of them kind of changed around during the pandemic. Um, But I think what's important to note is that in most parts of California, it does seem we saw some sort of diminishing of that violent crime in 2021, with the exception of cities like Oakland. Oakland had just a horrific jump in violence, actually starting in 2019. And some of that has continued and and they did increase in 2021. But writ large, it does seem like whatever happened in 2020, maybe hopefully is not going to be the trend moving forward. What do we know about the drivers of this crime? I mean, is it possible that the recession caused by the pandemic is partially to blame? Yeah, I mean, crime is really complicated is what I learned talking to a lot of criminologists for this story. But there's definitely some factors that we can sort of track over the past couple of years that do seem to track with historic trends. Absolutely, the economy can play a role. Um, We know that things like increased access to guns, which we saw happen during the pandemic, can be a big one. And then I do think policing is a part of this. You know, we saw a lot of pushback against police, a lot of promises to defund the police. Well, that 
defunding actually didn't happen almost anywhere. What we have seen is, you know, a lot of attrition caused by the pandemic among police departments, a lot of staffing problems, and potentially the criminologist I talked to said a pullback of policing because of that political backlash. So we know that police presence generally has a bigger impact on violent crime than, say, long criminal sentences. Um, And that's what's really interesting to me is that it might be all these confluence of factors, oddity, like not one thing. Yeah. I mean, this spike has become incredibly political with some people blaming reform-minded politicians for the rising rate. I mean, it's fueled the recall campaigns for two district attorneys. And it's becoming a big issue in the state attorney general's race, no? Absolutely. And what I found really fascinating, you know, digging into these numbers is that we actually did not see a bigger jump, especially in violent crime, in more progressive cities like San Francisco and L.A. And in fact, some rural counties had much higher spikes in murders and violent crime when you look at it on a per capita basis. Right. So these are the actual crime rates, not the number of crimes. That includes a place like Sacramento County, where the district attorney is challenging the Democratic attorney general. Uh, That's Anne-Marie Schubert. She's been really talking a lot about this violent crime in liberal cities. Sacramento's violent crime rate went up more than a place like San Francisco during the pandemic. So it's not as if we can directly tie political, like who's elected in these cities or whether they're red or blue to these crime increases. Yeah, it almost seems like the debate somehow becomes simplified to like red versus blue and like reprimand versus reform. But what you're saying is it's not actually that simple, that cut and dry. It's not when you look at the data. And then when I talk to criminologists, it's also not because of all of those complicated factors we talked about in terms of what plays into crime. Marisa Lagos is a politics correspondent for KQED and the host of KQED's Political Breakdown podcast. Marisa, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole? For 2,000 miles. The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. From March 12th onwards, California students can go to school without their masks, if local districts allow it. The state announced Monday it's shifting from requiring masks to recommending them. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports. Governor Gavin Newsom's office says the state is lifting the mandate due to declining COVID-19 case and hospitalization rates, and it's letting local districts and public health officials set their own policies. In Ventura County, Superintendent Jason Paplinski from Simi Valley Unified was grateful for the decision. He said his district will allow students to go maskless March 11th. 
as you can imagine, like many districts, we've had a lot of angst around this topic for the last few months, and um, it was increasingly less civil. (laughs) In San Francisco, the district says it will keep its mask requirement in place. Other districts, like Oakland and Berkeley Unified, are taking more time to decide. Pacolia Manigo has two sons in Oakland Public Schools. She says making masks optional puts pressure on families who still fear the virus can harm their children. It puts the responsibility on families and students to then have to defend what they believe is safety for them. The California Teachers Association issued a statement supporting the policy shift away from mask mandates and urging collaboration between local educators and families on policy changes. In a Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll out last week, 65 percent of California's registered voters surveyed said they approved of masking inside schools. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. Nearly 200 teachers in the Rockland Unified School District called in sick or took leave early yesterday after the district's board voted during a special meeting last week to make masks optional indoors. That's according to the Sacramento Bee. The Rockland Teachers Association says its teachers only heard about the meeting a day before it happened and that the board made the decision in a closed session rather than during a public meeting. Union leaders say while opinions on masks vary within the community, it's the, quote, lack of respect for educators that was the most concerning for teachers. Rockland Unified joined a growing list of districts in the greater Sacramento area that are defying the state's masking orders. The state's Employment Development Department, or EDD, has announced it's going to drastically expand language support for the at least 7 million Californians whose first language isn't English. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin reports. The announcement comes after nearly two years of legal mediation around gaps in EDD's language accommodations. Gaps that advocates say forced many out-of-work Californians to resort to using potentially predatory third parties to help them get their benefits, and forced people to rely on friends and family members instead of the state for support. You know, we had clients who were asking their small children, like eight and nine years old, to get on the phone with EDD. Joanne Lee is with the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. Joaquin Lopez is an unemployed farm worker living in Kern County. He speaks Mixteco and Spanish, and because of language support issues, still doesn't know the state of the claim he filed last December. Lopez says he's been living off his savings and eating little while he waits for his benefits. As a result of the agreement, EDD will establish a multilingual advisory board and expand the number of dedicated phone lines with multilingual agents. I think it's worth noting that these state agencies are required by law to provide meaningful language access. This isn't something extra. It's not like a charitable thing. It's a legal mandate. Advocates like Winnie Gao of the Asian Law Caucus hope this shift will serve as a model for other state agencies going forward. For the California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. KQED did reach out to the EDD office for comment, but they declined for this story. The gap in voter turnout between white and black Californians continues to grow, according to new research published Monday by the Center for Inclusive Democracy at USC. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati has more. 2020 was a historic year for voter turnout in California, but Mindy Romero, one of the report's authors, says... The turnout gaps between black and white 
non-Latino voters have been widening in California. James Woodson, executive director of the California Black Power Network, points to a couple of explanations. One is a growing turnout gap among Black voters of different generations. The likely Black voter is, is actually aging and not being replaced by younger Black voters. And Woodson says that as more and more Black Californians are displaced from urban centers, they're moving to areas that don't necessarily have established organizing infrastructure, don't have you know groups that are reach, reaching out to engage them around elections. The USC survey also found Black voters were twice as likely to take a bus or train to the polls versus other racial or ethnic groups in 2020. That can make voting in person difficult in suburban or exurban areas like parts of the Inland Empire, says Minister Quan Williams, an organizer there. You know, even catching public transportation to a polling place can be challenging. You might have to walk in the street to get there. This year, roughly a dozen California counties will offer fewer places to vote in person, though with longer hours. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. The city of L.A. has to go back to the drawing board on its plan for new housing. KPCC's David Wagner explains why state regulators rejected L.A.'s proposal. California law requires local governments to plan for new housing every eight years. This cycle, governments across Southern California have a big goal, a total of 1.3 million new homes. L.A. recently sent its rezoning plan to Sacramento for approval, but last week the state rejected it. Regulators commended the city's willingness to accommodate almost half a million new homes, but they said L.A.'s plan lacked specific commitments to confront patterns of racial segregation and promote fair housing. The rejection moves up the city's rezoning deadline to mid-October. If L.A. doesn't meet that deadline, it could lose billions of dollars in state funding for affordable housing development. For the California Report, I'm David Wagner in Los Angeles. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are calling on California to divest from Russia as the war continues in Ukraine. Senate Majority Leader Mike McGuire, a Democrat, co-authored a bill that would call on all state agencies to divest from any and all Russian assets immediately. McGuire said he believes the state has more than $1 billion in Russian investments, mostly in its pension funds. These investments make up a relatively small portion of the state's massive public pension funds, which are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. President Biden has announced extensive economic sanctions against Russia in response to the invasion of Ukraine. And McGuire says California, as the world's fifth largest economy, has a unique power to do the same. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, March 1st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The California Healthcare Foundation working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just health care system on the web at chcf.org slash health-equity. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!